0: Let us pray. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Therefore, illumine now our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, we might receive with joy what you have to say to us today. We make our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament lesson today comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 10 and 24, two readings because we don't read Deuteronomy as much as we should. It's the third most quoted book in the New Testament after Psalms and Isaiah. So I invite you now to listen for the word of the Lord. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial And takes no bribe who executes justice for the orphan and the widow and who loves the strangers providing them food and clothing you shall also love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt you shall fear the Lord your God him alone you shall worship to him you shall hold fast and by his name you shall swear he is your praise He is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things that your own eyes have seen. Your ancestors went down to Egypt seventy persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in heaven. You shall not deprive a stranger or an orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment in pledge. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be left for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. It shall be for the stranger the orphan, and the widow. When you gather the grapes from your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It shall be for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. And our New Testament lesson today is from Matthew 25, verses 31 through 40. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In spite of some of its strange and harsh laws, Deuteronomy is actually a very compassionate book. Throughout its pages and throughout the Torah, generally the first five books of the Old Testament, there are repeated calls to love others. The Bible is concerned with Israelite society's defenseless people, including the orphan and the widow and the poor, that common refrain. There's perhaps no more well-known Bible verse than Jesus' command to love thy neighbor as thyself, which he drew verbatim from the book of Leviticus, of all places. But as much as we might want to applaud the Bible for its compassionate concern for the most vulnerable Israelites, the truth is that the Torah is not the only ancient law code from ancient mesopotamia to speak about the need to care for widows orphans and the poor in fact lots of societies had laws demanding that citizens provide for their neighbors and their fellow citizens we might imagine ancient societies to be brutal at times but lots of ancient kings bragged about their good care for widows orphans and the poor Take Urukagina of Lagash in the 25th century, of course, and Ur-Namu, the founder of the third dynasty of Ur in the 21st century. The usual suspects, right? These kings claim to have accomplished the virtue of protection for the widow, the orphan, and the poor. The less obscure law codes of Hammurabi from the 18th century elaborate further. In the epilogue, uh, there's a claim made, that's made that the gods commanded Hammurabi to institute the aforementioned laws, quote, so that the strong might not oppress the weak, and so as to give justice to the orphaned homeless girl and the widow. Sounds a lot like the Bible, doesn't it? You see, when it comes to laws commanding love of neighbor and love of fellow citizen, The Bible really just follows the cultural norms of its day that had already been established for centuries. Everyone seemed to know that it's right to care for one's own people. The idea is sort of a primitive human instinct, so when you really think about it, it's not especially remarkable that we find this commandment in the pages of our scripture. As Jesus puts it on the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In other words, lots of people know that they should love their neighbor. This doesn't make the commandment any less important, of course. The extent to which we love our neighbor is still a measure of our discipleship, and a commandment need not be novel or unique or unparalleled elsewhere in order to be the word of God. But there is one unique component to the Hebrew Torah that sets it apart from other ancient law codes. And that is the command to love the stranger. The repeated emphasis on the obligation of Israel to the strangers in its midst is not found elsewhere in the literature of the ancient Near East. Here, the Bible is truly trailblazing for its time. And Deuteronomy doesn't just make casual and occasional reference to this love thy stranger ethic. Depending on how you count the references, it can be found at least 16 times in Deuteronomy and at least 30 times throughout the Torah. In other words, God is really serious about this. So who are these strangers that Deuteronomy is so interested in? Well, the English word stranger simply means Someone we don't know, right? Our next-door neighbors could be strangers if we don't have any relationship with them. And we often view strangers with suspicion. We warn our children not to talk to strangers because we have a kind of default wariness of those we don't know. And we don't trust strangers until they've earned our trust, at which point they're no longer strangers, but friends or neighbors. But the Hebrew word here means something a bit different. It's sometimes translated stranger or sojourner or alien. And in the Torah, these strangers are people who are forced to live in a foreign land because of the threat of danger. These are not people on vacation or opportunists looking to get ahead. These are people fleeing persecution and violence. These are people who find themselves among the Israelites as cultural outsiders. So the truth is that a better translation of this word today would be refugee. That's certainly what we'd call them today. In short, a stranger is a non-citizen, and the Torah's command to care for outsiders as well as insiders is what sets it apart from the other law codes of its day all cultures knew to extend a hand to their own. But it's only the God of Israel who is said to stand with the vulnerable regardless of their cultural or ethnic background, regardless of their tribes or nation of origin, regardless of whether they had an Israelite passport. Now, As we've heard, the command to love the stranger doesn't come without rationale or explanation. Moses explains exactly why Israel is to love the stranger in its midst. He said, You shall also love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember, Israel had been enslaved in Egypt since the days of Joseph. And while they were in Egypt, the Pharaoh was hostile and cruel to them because they were foreigners. In Egypt, they had been exploited for their work, forced to toil long hours in the heat of the day, laying bricks, only to barely scrape by. And now that God had freed them from that oppression, God insists that they do not recreate Egypt-like conditions in Israel. From God's point of view, it would be a terrible tragedy if people who had once faced persecution in a distant land were to arrive in a free country only to become persecutors themselves. Wouldn't that be a terrible tragedy? Now notice, the command to love the stranger is a positive command. God doesn't say, leave the stranger alone, but love the stranger. In other words, it's a call to do something, a call to action. The command is to play an active role in the protection and the provision of the stranger when they enter the land. And Deuteronomy gives a very practical example of how to do this. When the Israelites harvested their grain or picked their grapes or collected some olives, they were supposed to do a sloppy job. They were to be sure to leave some behind on the perimeter of their land for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. This ensured that everyone had access to food, because to be landless in the ancient world, as the strangers would have been, would have epitomized vulnerability, because without land, you'd be without food, and without food, you'd be without hope. You see, this is the amazing thing about Deuteronomy it's not enough to just prohibit oppression. Rather, the Israelites were to actively participate in removing the boundaries between themselves and the foreigners in their midst. It was not enough just to care for vulnerable Israelites, though that too, of course, is imperative. But that same care had to extend to all the vulnerable in the land, whether a citizen of Israel or not. Now, As comprehensive and demanding as Deuteronomy is in its command that we love the stranger, Jesus takes this requirement even further in Matthew 25 by not only reiterating that we must love the stranger, but going so far as to identify himself with the stranger we are called to love. The righteous didn't know it, but when they loved the stranger, they were in fact loving Jesus himself. Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. It's so easy to think of Jesus as one of us, right? Someone who shares our same circles, our cultural sensibilities, our common sense. But when Jesus says in verse 35, I was a stranger and you welcomed me, the Greek word for stranger is xenos, from which we get our English word xenophobia, which means fear of foreigners. When Jesus identifies himself as a xenos, he is identifying himself as someone quite unlike us, perhaps even the last person we expect perhaps even the last person we want. It's no wonder then that when the sheep loved the strangers in their midst, they had no idea that it was Jesus. Our nation is certainly a fascinating context to encounter these texts. On the one hand, we're a country comprised of people from all over the world. Call it a melting pot or a toss salad or whatever you want. The United States is a nation with all sorts of ethnic and tribal identities, languages and accents, bananas and bananas, traditions and cultures, and we all dwell together under this umbrella that we call America. If you were to review the data from the latest census, it may look on paper like, we are a nation of Matthew 25 sheep, extending provision to the world's strangers. Inscribed on the Statue of Liberty, after all, are those famous words, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Sadly, of course, we know that much of our society doesn't just fail to provide for the tired, poor, homeless, and tempest-tossed. Much of our society doesn't even ascribe to these ideals. Our society's rotting with xenophobia, with identity politics, with mutual suspicion. And it can be found on the right and the left, by the way, if you're feeling politically self-righteous. And it gets worse. This is not only an American problem, friends, this is perhaps especially a Christian problem A recent Pew Research survey asked all Americans if they believe the United States has a responsibility to welcome refugees into the country. And the results revealed that 51% of Americans do believe America bears this responsibility. We're pretty much split right down the middle as a nation. Half of us sheep, half of us goats. But here's the shocking thing. The group least likely to say that America has a responsibility to welcome refugees into the country is white evangelical Christians. Only 25% of them told Pew that they believed the U.S. has this responsibility, compared with 50% of Catholics and 63% of Black Protestants. Friends that's an awful lot of Christian goats. As you may know. Various crises all around the world have left us with more refugees globally today than at any time since World War II. Gang violence in Central America, civil war in Syria and Yemen, genocide in Myanmar, dictatorship in Venezuela, the return of the Taliban in Afghanistan. The list goes on and on. Refugees find themselves in foreign lands as wanderers and strangers, vulnerable to hostility. And as the world moves from one refugee crisis to another, the Christian church in America seems more intent on sharpening our goat horns than offering the wool off our backs as fleece to clothe the naked. Now, it's true that strangers sometimes come with baggage. They often come hungry, thirsty, naked, sick, or imprisoned. They often bear the scars of unspeakable trauma and so can be highly dysfunctional. They require significant sacrifice in order to be cared for. But if Jesus is among those strangers and Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice for all of us, can we really complain about being asked to leave a few sheaves of wheat in our field? Can we really complain about being asked to leave some grapes in our vineyard or a few olives on the trees? Can we really complain about being asked to give food to the hungry and water to the thirsty? Jesus is warning us in this monumental text in Matthew 25 that we must not fail to convert our blessings into blessings for others. We must not insulate ourselves from the world's pain and the world's needs by hiding behind walls of nationalism or privilege or entitlement, nor must we succumb to hopelessness or despair or resignation, which are dividing walls in their own right. Because behind every dividing wall that we try to construct between ourselves and the stranger is Jesus Christ, our Lord, staring back at us through the barbed wire that we ourselves have erected between us and our Lord in the name of self-preservation. But friends, if we do not overcome the dividing walls of hostility while Christ is among us as a stranger? What will it be like when Christ returns in glory, seated with his angels on the glorious throne, gathering together all nations before him? Matthew doesn't spare us this question. This is really urgent stuff. Jesus never shed his identity. As a stranger. He was a refugee from birth, for King Herod's killing spree forced Mary and Joseph to flee political violence to the land of Egypt, of all places. As an adult, Jesus lived as a non-citizen in the Roman Empire, the most powerful nation on earth, and it was because he didn't have the rights of citizenship there that he was crucified on a cross rather than killed by a less torturous, less cruel, and unusual form of the death penalty. You see, crucifixion was reserved for slaves and foreigners. Roman citizens were exempt. Think about that. The cross wouldn't be the symbol of our faith if Jesus had been a citizen of his land. The cross itself reminds us that he was a stranger in the Roman Empire. Little wonder, then, that he can still be found among the strangers today. My grandmother used to say that whenever we extend hospitality to strangers, we never know when we might be entertaining angels, as that beautiful verse in Hebrews says. But it might not just be angels that we're entertaining when we extend hospitality to strangers. It might be Christ himself.